Microphone check. One, two, three. City, city, sibilance, sibilance. Levels check. Good. Sounds good. One, two, three. Rolling and. Right from the beginning, I think one of the things which is key uh, to my passion about documentary is the, the contrast. You dive into the life of other people and it has nothing to do with yourself, N nothing to do with your own own with your own background. It's completely irrelevant who you are, but other people somehow allow you access to have an insight into into their lives and, and you discover different worlds and, and it's just very, very enriching. Hello and welcome to The Documentary Life, a show that sets out to inspire and inform you on how to best live and lead your own documentary life. I'm your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is episode number 110, and it is brought to you by Barong Films, proud creators of documentary film, the Documentary Life podcast, and now our independent documentary filmmaker 101 online course designed to help you fund, make, and distribute your best documentary film. Welcome back to the documentary life. How are you, Mr. Lyndon Stone? It's it's good to have you back on the show. Good, Chris. It's good to speak again. Enjoy Cambodia? Yes, Cambodia was great. You know, so great that we're looking to head back here uh, in fairly short order. So uh, thanks for thanks for asking right. in about that. I appreciate that. So, so Lyndon, no we've been talking to you now. Oh, I think this will be our third year that we've talked to you. And and yeah. and correct me if I'm wrong here. MDFF has now this will be its fourth year, correct? Yes, yeah, incredible. It's just a fourth year, Chris. But just in four years, how things have changed in the the landscape in in documentary. It's it's, it's really interesting. Yeah, and not only yeah. in the, the the landscape of documentary itself, but I, I just want to stop you there for a minute because MDFF, after four only four years, you guys have truly become one of the more respected documentary film festivals around. So I know. right at the outset, man, I want to say congratulations. I really do. Thank Thanks, Chris. I really appreciate that. And, and what do you attribute this success to? I, I think it's... We had some Australian filmmakers out at Tribeca, yeah? And all the filmmakers were coming up to them. What's Melbourne Documentary Film Festival like? And they were yeah. talking about them. We've had a lot of submissions from all the major American uh, film festivals and stuff like like, like Tribeca, Big Sky, mm. uh, Sundance. So we get a lot of, lot of traffic and uh, submissions from those film festivals. But it's really changed. I think now, I, I didn't know how big it really was, but when 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 this Australian filmmaker came back from Trebek, he said, Lyndon, your festival is huge in America. Yeah. So the whole the whole dynamic of when, I think when North America thinks of documentary, they think Melbourne documentary now. Oh, it's incredible. Like it, I, And it comes down to a few things, a few marketing things, a few different things yeah. here. I mean, in Australia, it's different. It's, it's antenna, which is in Sydney. Mm. And I think probably in Europe, probably the same antenna. But in North America, that's where the majority of the submissions come from. It's actually Melbourne Documentary. And that's yeah. an incredible change <laughs> yeah. just in four years. Yeah. It's huge. It's really, really big. Yeah. It, it's it's exciting. It's exciting. Can you give it me is, one yeah. or two reasons that you can point to that you feel that that has happened? 
Well, I think, you know, mainly, it, it, maybe it's probably Film Freeway. They're, they're now the preeminent force, you know, without a box is closed down and, and Film Freeway has been promoting us. And there's not too many dedicated documentary film festivals in Australia. There's Antenna, obviously, in Sydney. There's in Canberra, there's Stronger Than Fiction. Of great course, people yeah. there, at, there in Canberra. And then there's us in Melbourne. That's that's about it. Um, I mean, there's the Environmental Film Festival, Transitions Film Festival, yeah. uh, Human Rights, but they also go into drama. But other than that, it just unabashedly documentary. Yeah. There's only really three, yeah, and, and those are the three major ones. We've become, in North America at least, you know, uh, the preeminent force in in documentary. It's just incredible how it's changed, you know. Um, just in four years, you know, things can change just like that. So it's it's really incredible, yeah. It's just an incredible ride, yeah. It's it's yeah. It's it's been really fun to see, you know, from this end, both as a doc filmmaker and as you know the host of, of this podcast. And certainly because we've had you on almost from the beginning, it's been really exciting to see that. So again, congratulations, Lyndon. Thanks. Now this year, Lyndon, what's what is what's new or different that you can tell us about um, about this year's MDFF? Well, well, this year, I think probably, you know, we were simultaneously, you know, we always try and honor people. We always like we had Bob Hawke from Film Hawk. Uh, we've got uh, Chipmunk from Woodstock. So we're always trying to honor people. But in terms of different things, we're doing this new thing called New Voices. Mm. So we're trying to find, you know, up and coming emerging uh, filmmakers. We've got a, a great one uh, oh. from America, from Tribeca, who's done 17 blocks, Davey Robart. Yeah. He is absolutely incredible filmmaker. It's like it's almost like forty two and up. Um, oh, it's wow. an incredible documentary. And then obviously we've got these new, we've got all these legendary documentary directors. We've got Barbara Koppel, isn't that great? Barbara yeah, Koppel, Claudia Von Planter. She was who, who on the lineup. <laughs> yeah, and and then um, you know Alex Winter as well. Like I mean, he's a bright shining star, an incredibly lovely guy. Indeed. Um, and he even recorded a little video for us. I mean, what a top guy. He's just a really, really nice guy. But in terms of uh, different categories, we're doing video essays. We're kind of branching out, trying to bring video essay, which I guess is seen as a different genre, yeah. into the fold, into the yeah. documentary fold. And then obviously we do Doc Web series, which is very progressive, very yeah. similar to IDFA, who do Doc Web series. I think we're the only one down under who does Doc Web series. Oh, okay, great. And, and I think and I think that's a, probably a, a good you know, another trying to bring people into documentary like we do with documentary photography. Yes. So, yeah, it's just kind of a point of difference, trying to innovate, be progressive. Um, yeah, and, and, and it's working. And I think it's, it's going incredibly mm. well mm. and um, and really connecting with a, a good local audience. It's kind of some of the hot docs, like it's winter but still people are coming out in droves. Yeah, you know, so it's, yeah, it's going to be good, yeah. That's great. That's yeah. great. Now, last year you mentioned trying to do something a little more uh, for the doc filmmakers themselves. Has that been – have you been able has – that, has that transpired in any way this year with, with MDFF? Well, I guess, you know, obviously with, with – we always try and be a filmmaker's film festival. Yeah. And obviously it's a competition. And it's hard sometimes when people submit and you have to say – no, but yeah. what we what we tend to do now is we I mean we've done this in the past I think we're the only festival that do that we give people a complimentary double pass to come along you know so oh. that offsets most if not all of their uh, submission fee people take us up on that offer and they can come to any film in the in the festival and I give them a, a complimentary double pass uh -huh. to go and see that um, uh -huh. so it's it's kind of trying to be a female centric festival we also give people feedback on submissions yeah. and we still do that yeah. Um, we're doing a master class. We're doing a couple of master classes with uh, one lecturer from Swinburne, one lecturer from Monash. 
ones that make your personal documentary. You you had Doug Block on not too <laughs> right, long ago, yeah, yeah. and we're doing one on making Australian music documentaries. Australia makes fantastic music documentaries. Oh, they, they're awesome. really really strong in that, and I think that's a a key element that can uh, differentiate Australia from other kind of um, doc kind of nations. Because this this Australia is so strong, it, it's so good at making uh, Australian or oh, sorry music documentaries. Yeah. They're so passionate about it. So well edited, well put together, and all these kind of great little stories or anecdotes that are put into it. So they put a lot of passion to it. You can just see it on the screen. Fantastic. Uh, I've got a great one called uh, Waiting the Van Duren Story. Mm. And it's just it's just wonderful to see. You know, It's just an indie documentary, just you know, passionately put together. And it's just great. It's just really kinetic and it really connects with an audience. And that's, it's just great to see that there's so much mm. innate talent in Australia. So that's, it's really wonderful to see and to showcase it. Yeah. So we are speaking with Claudio Van Planta and his current film, his documentary directorial debut. Of course, he's a, a well-known DP. And we're speaking with right. Claudio Van Planta and his film is Chasing the Jet Stream. What can you tell us, Lyndon, about why this particular film was chosen? What was it about Chasing the Jet Stream that spoke to you? Well, that's the thing. It's different. Like, it's two documentaries in one. There's a science side, which looks at jet stream technology and how they can revolutionize, you know, the energy crisis around the world. Um, and then there's also the adventure kind of side of it about Mark Hauser, you know, <laughs> uh, preparing to, you know, jump into the to the jet stream. And I, this is one of the first documentaries I had, like, um, like a kind of focus group watch it. And ah. uh, and they actually really liked it. Some of the Australian critics don't quite get it. Like, yeah. they're like... You know, this what's this guy doing? And it's kind of science. It's kind of, but I like it because it's different. That's why I picked it up. Same with a lot of the films that we have. We try and be, you know, try and bring new, uh, kind of left of center kind of documentaries, along as with you know, you know, hard hitting documentaries, award winning documentaries. We try to have some stuff that is a little bit left of center, a little bit different. Yeah, I think it's 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 unique, and and the focus group loved it. You know, so have you seen it, Chris? Have you watched? I Jason have, I have, I have. And what do you think? We're talking with him momentarily. Yeah, I, yeah. I think it's great. I I love that. You know, of course, I was familiar with Claudio Claudio's work as a DP, certainly with the Long Way Round documentary series that he did with Ewan McGregor yeah. and, and Charlie Borman. And yeah. Uh, yeah, so I was kind of, I was definitely excited to see it, and and I was not let down. And and the subject material yeah, is, as you was. said, yeah. it is it is fascinating, both from a from it a is. scientific or science a sort of realm, as well as a, as as of course the human element. So so Lyndon, as we wrap up here, as we've done our sort of yearly check in with you, sure. let us know when and how we might be able to attend MDFF. When when, when is when is MDFF playing this year? Okay, so it's from 19th to the 30th of July in, in Cinema Nova, which okay. is in Carlton. And it is also at Backlot, which is in South Bank in, um, in uh, central Melbourne. And yeah, everyone's welcome to come along. We have a great diverse range of documentaries, full spectrum of documentaries. So there's really something there for everyone, you know. So we've tried to be curate for melbourne as a whole and um yeah so i think people should go support go support the indie filmmakers the people competing uh the festival and um, have a good time yeah fantastic and i know that i've probably said this now three years running but uh, i will say again i i do look forward to attending one of these one of these years and hopefully it'll be next year with elvis of cambodia who knows yeah it's it's been absolutely fascinating, Chris. Just like four years, just absolutely fascinating documentaries that come in. We've had stuff, yeah. you know, from nation states doing PR exercises to shadowy organizations <laughs> that, uh, you know, got a certain agenda to do. We've got, um, you know, all these big celebrities that have got these pet kind of documentary projects they want to, you know, premiere yeah. in. Yeah. 
in Australia. It's been it's been a fascinating, interesting, never a dull moment, you know. So uh, yeah, I can't wait to meet you in person down the line here and further our discussion. It'll be great. Yeah, it'd be great. Yeah, you take care, Chris, and you as well. Thanks a lot, Lyndon. Over the past year, Steph and I have been talking to countless doc filmmakers and finding out their biggest pain points, taking the best of an earlier version of the doc filmmaking platform, formerly known as the Documentary Academy, and taking the best and worst of our own doc filmmaking experiences, and we've created Independent Documentary Filmmaker 101. In Independent Documentary Filmmaker 101, we have targeted six specific areas that we believe are the essential non-creative aspects of doc filmmaking. And out of this, we have created six robust modules. They are perspective and mindset, pitches and proposals, presence and connection, film finances, film promotion, and film distribution. Now, our approach is simple and straightforward. You start from the beginning of the course, and using our mixture of video and text tutorials, our tailor-made workbooks, MP3s, and some of our industry expert webinars, you work through each module, creating the foundation for an empowered and successful documentary film. If you'd like to learn more about how Independent Documentary Filmmaker 101 can help your film, then visit thedocumentarylife.com slash courses. Take it from me, it's one thing to have a great idea for a film and maybe have some of the gear in which to shoot it, but it's an entirely other thing to operate with a real budget, being able to pay your crew and yourself, and to understand the methods of proper audience building or how to promote, market, then distribute your film. If you think that you are ready to start making the kind of documentary film that you can be excited and proud to share with the world, Independent Documentary Filmmaker 101 is the course for you. Check it out today by going to thedocumentarylife.com slash courses. We'll see you there. You've probably noticed that we're playing around with some pretty cool fresh sounds on this season of TDL. And I'd like to thank Musicvine for supplying us with those cool fresh sounds. If you're interested in learning a little bit more about how Musicvine might be able to serve your doc project, you can check out the show notes for today's episode, or you can simply go to their website at musicvine.com. Joining us today here on The Documentary Life is Claudio Van Planta, one of today's more respected DPs in the world of documentary cinema and television. He may be best known for his work following the actors Ewan McGregor and Charlie Borman around the globe, from London to New York via motorcycle. But Claudio is also the man behind such adverse works such as Racing Green, The Rape Trade, The Kurdish Dream, and Guns for Hire, that's just to name a few. His latest documentary film, which he also produced and directed, and is showing at this year's Melbourne Documentary Film Festival, is Chasing the Jet Stream, a film that follows the adventures of Mark Hauser from Switzerland, who wants to be the first skydiver in the world to jump into the jet stream. Claudio, welcome to The Documentary Life. Very excited to have this conversation with you. Yes, thank you very much for the invitation. It is my pleasure. So, so Claudio, I'm curious for you, when did documentary as a genre, when did documentary films start for you? Yeah, I somehow just stumbled into it. It wasn't really planned. And it started in, properly, it started in 1985. 
And at the time, I was uh, studying in Zurich uh, political science. And during my first university holidays, I felt it would be cool to do something more hands-on than just reading books and uh, going to seminars. <laughs> and I thought, you know, what could I do? Maybe the production of a little news report would be cool. You know, I had never done anything like it. I just played around with Super 8 cameras when I was still at school. Mm -hmm. And I was technically always interested and it felt it can't be that complicated. And if you watch the news and, and you analyze a little bit how these news reports are put together, you you know, I felt it's it's not rocket science. You should be able to do it. But I didn't go to any film school, nothing. I just thought if I pick up my little Super 8 camera, I just need to go to an, an exciting place a little bit you know, off the beaten track and then see, you know, how far I get. Mm. And then at the time in 85, the whole news media was focusing mainly on, on the, the conflicts in Latin America, Nicaragua, mm. El Salvador, places like that. Yeah, I remember it well. And I thought, so I definitely shouldn't go there. There's too much competition. I need to go further away. Ah. And so I decided to go to Afghanistan. Because in Afghanistan, you already had, a, you know, quite a, for a few years war. The Russians, the Soviets invaded in 79. So when I went there in 85, they had six years of war. They had already loads of refugees in Pakistan and in Iran. But we, we had hardly any information about this. Yeah. You know, this was before the Internet, before everything. And, and I thought maybe that's, that's a place where, where I could do something. And generally, I, I liked, I was always, I always tried to find a career which gives me a pretext to travel, to get out of Switzerland. I was just born, sitting in Switzerland. Yeah. I wanted to see the, the bigger world. And I thought journalism could be, you know, a good, good direction. But I was a little bit dyslexic and always felt handicapped with writing. And therefore, I thought maybe something more focused on vision and sound that uh, could be, uh, could be good. And that's why I, right from the beginning, picked up a camera. And then on this trip in uh, Afghanistan, which was pretty crazy because I, re I really had no experience, nothing. Uh, th now, the one thing I had, I had some very good military training in Switzerland because everybody has to do military service um, in Switzerland. And I was with mountain grenadiers and... And I had some really very useful um, skills and, and training, you know, for survival and and as well the, the training with weapons and ammunitions and explosives and everything was very useful later on in my career when I ended up in conflict zones. So it was I was not completely stupid, but so I, I realized I'm not too anxious about the kind of the military side, the conflict side, but on the media side, documentary filmmaking, <laughs> I had no clue at all. Somehow I, I survived and I came back with some footage and I could sell it eventually to French television in Paris for a little news feature in the evening news. And, and then at the end, once that story went out, uh, the editor of the, the program asked me, so what's next? What are your plans? And I say, I, I need to go back to, to university in Switzerland. Uh, <laughs> you got to get back to school. My studies. <laughs> and he said, are you serious? You know, this is not too boring. You know, we need, we need people like you. Mm. 
who have some guts to go to difficult places yeah. and don't you want to go back? We give you an assignment. <laughs> so, wow. so basically that was my entry straight foot into the door with the TV in, in industry. And I never went back to university. And, wow. and, and that was the way how I ended up with documentary. And it's really, I, I it just completely fitted my my character, my yeah. personality. You know, I, I really yeah. just by chance, I stumbled into it. I just realized this, uh, particularly running around with a camera is is the aspect which I like most, which is very close to my my own instincts. It's like hunting. I, it feels it's quite basic with, you know, it's close to our basic instincts. It's like hunting and you know, you know, as in, in Stone Age, we knew we had to go out and we have to hunt and we have to, we can't come back before we had a prey. And with, with documentary filmmaking, is a little bit the same. You just know you need to be on the case and it has to, you know, you can't come back and empty-handed. And and instead of having, you know, a bow and an arrow or a gun, you just have a camera. But the, the, the approach is very similar. Well, Claudio, I feel like you may even be, be sort of underrepresenting it yourself in a little way because... I would say that documentary didn't accidentally happen for you, right? You know, I believe that these callings happen for a reason. And I feel like that, that, that you may feel a similar way. I'm, I mean, I think you recognized a door opened, right, Claudio? A door opened for you and you recognized that it was more to your character, as, as you had said. And you followed that door and it opened up, you know, this whole world to you. Whereas... It's kind of like doc filmmaking itself. When you're when you're working on a project, there are certain doors that will open up in storylines and threads. And it's up for you to decide which doors you want to go through and which threads you want to follow. You know, there are times where if you're not open to those doors, then you may miss a whole aspect to your story or a critical character potentially in your film. I think it's something similar in our lives when the certain doors open up. And in, in, in your case, you recognized again that it was it was too more to your liking and more to your character. And that's what sent you in the way of of shooting with a camera and in the way of documentary. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's uh, quite good to be in touch with your emotions and 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 your passion and, and and you need to you need to accept that certain things are just better suited for your character than others and it definitely for in my case it just felt you know sitting in a bench in a university <laughs> uh it's just so abstract and i i felt much more alive um, in this um, situation in afghanistan in the middle of yeah. a crazy place yeah you know, with, with Afghan Mujahideens, effectively they were the same guys like today Taliban, you know, right. the same people, they just call themselves different, but you know, the mentality was the same and it was so extreme as a contrast to my sheltered life in Switzerland. Yeah. And I was just fascinated. I, I, right from the beginning, I think one of the things which is key uh, to my passion about documentary is, is the, the contrast mm. and it's it's and you dive into the life of other people and yeah. it has nothing to do with yourself <laughs> nothing to do with your own own character with your own background it's completely ir irrelevant who you are mm. but other people somehow allow you access to have an insight into into their lives and and you discover different worlds and and it's just very very enriching and um i imagine I always sometimes ask myself, 
maybe for actors, there must be an element like that, where, you know, suddenly they are on stage and they have to play a character which has nothing to do with themselves <laughs> and they can just be somebody else. And it's very liberating because suddenly you're not, not kind of like in that prison of your own personality. And, and for documentary filmmaking, it's more the observer position, which, um, yeah. which I like. Well, speaking of actors, you worked with two pretty well-known actors in Ewan McGregor and Charlie Borman, and it's work that maybe you're a bit certainly known for in terms of your name being attached to a project, and that was the Long Way Round series. Can you tell us briefly what the Long Way Round series was about and how you were first, uh, how that project came to be for you? Yes, it was very strange. It's, I think it's the only job ever I had completely out of the blue. <laughs> totally out of the blue. It was just a phone call from a researcher who worked for that production. And they basically had these two actors, Ewan McGregor and Charlie Borman. They both into motorbikes and they had the idea of organizing a big trip. And eventually um, came to the conclusion they actually should try and drive around the world. Uh, therefore, long way around. Uh, starting in the UK, going east in the Northern Hemisphere, across Europe, then all the former Soviet countries, eventually through Siberia to Magadan and then fly across to Anchorage in Alaska and then drive across North America to, to New York. Yeah. That was their plan. <laughs> and they apparently, like two weeks before departure, they still didn't have a, a suitable camera cameraman who mm. could be on a third bike because they had two bikes and there was a third bike for somebody who should film and and so they were they, they interviewed loads of people but uh, you know usually they had i'm sure they they have spoken to top 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 um very experienced people but often they said yeah but you need a sound recordist you need uh, whatever somebody for lighting and it was always too complicated they said, no, no, <laughs> just one guy who runs like a one-man show, he can be on the third bike yep. and, and there's no no other option. You need a doc filmmaker. <laughs> yeah, so somehow a researcher found my website and called me up and, and I went to see them. And apparently within five minutes or very quickly when they spoke to me, they decided, yeah, that's the guy. That's the guy. And the main reason was simply the fact that I said, yeah, no problem, I can do this on my own. And that's a skill which I learned, you know, particularly in conflict zones where yeah. you can't rock up with a whole team. No. You have to be able to do everything on your own. You have to, you know, go under the radar, maybe sometimes across borders illegally. You need to pretend to be a tourist. You have a mini little tiny camera. You don't have a huge big camera which looks looks impressive. No, no, no. You always have to underplay your role so people don't even realize what you're doing. And so that's how that's that was the beginning of my career in uh, tricky places. Yeah. And then it was useful for long way around as well. We're going to ride 20,000 miles in 115 days through 12 countries, Europe, Kazakhstan and Mongolia, and then ride the road of bonds in Far Eastern Russia. And we're going to fly to Alaska and go through Canada, America and New York. Claudio, I'd like to, to mention something that you said earlier that really struck me, and it's this idea of having almost a hunter's instinct um, with your camera operation. Now, my question for you about that, Claudia, is that something, can, can other doc filmmakers 
Can they develop that sort of instinct? Or do you think that's the sort of a personality trait that you may or may not have or embody? Or, or is it something that you can, you can kind of um, practice and kind of develop on your own? No, I, I never thought about it, but maybe it's part of your personality. Either you have it or you don't. Yeah. Uh, like some people are just very musical. Yeah. And some others, they could train forever. They will never be musical because they, they just don't have the ear for it. Because that hunting instinct, as I say, it's, it's, it really it taps into, you know, basic instincts. It needs to be very deep down. And, and, and it needs to, you know, it takes so much energy um, to stay on a story for a long time. And, mm. and I think even, you know, the films you are making, you seem to spend a lot of time as well on these stories. Mm. Um, you know, sometimes years. And yeah. you really need to be... You really need to be obsessed to to have the stamina to do this. And, you know, somebody who is just short-tempered and, you know, little attention span, never, ever, ever, they could do this. It would just feel totally silly to them. <laughs> How, why should you stay on a stupid story for such a long time where you're not even sure whether it has ever an interesting ending? Yeah, right, right, where it's going to end it's up. It's always huge as well. You need to be... You know, you need to accept risks. It's not a feature film where you can plan the storyline. Um, on a documentary, you always hope there is a, an interesting storyline. Yeah. But, you know, if you're unlucky, it might fall apart. Yeah. And, um, and so, you know, even stories with Long Way Round, if you take that example, it's easy to see the storyline you need to start from a yeah. in in london and you want to get around the world with motorbikes and, and, and so York, hopefully yeah. hopefully you will get there yeah because if you let's say you have an accident halfway then you know the story isn't really that exciting anymore right and you probably wouldn't have you could still make a story until you know the sad end there is an accident but it wouldn't be, you know, people wouldn't be that much interested, most likely. And so that's with every documentary. You you have a vision what the, you know, the, the goal should be, and but you're, you're never sure whether it actually happens. Well, another film that you have spent some time on yourself and where you don't necessarily know how it will end up, although you certainly have a, a hope and so does the main character, how it may end up is the current film chasing the jet stream, which is making its way around film festivals. Now this is a film that you produced as well as directed and shot. Again, the film is chasing the jet stream. Claudio, tell us a little bit about the film and where the idea came from for you. Yeah, this is a, a perfect example of the type of stories I, I like to follow. And usually these, stories they come out of the blue a little bit like um long way around where i just got a telephone call from some desperate producers who needed a cameraman to jump on a third bike to follow you and charlie <laughs> and, and see you know fortunately that long way around story um uh, worked well and became quite famous and so lots of people somehow heard about my name yeah. beca because my association with, with long way around and so since then, so that was like 2004 was the first story, Long Way Round, and 2007 we did Long Way Down. Yeah. And since then, I often have people calling me up, people, other adventurers who want to do expeditions, uh... Uh, something big, which is quite cool 
because you already have people who wow. actually want to be filmed. So yeah, you yeah, don't yeah. have to win their trust they yeah. they are looking for somebody who who will capture their story whatever it is and so the ch chasing the jet stream story was exactly based on that you have this swiss skydiver entrepreneur skydiver mark hauser who is passionate about flying all his life he was uh, in planes and gliders and he got into skydiving and parachuting all sorts of things and he's a very kind of uh, an incredible, has an incredible mind, very creative. And he somehow came up with this idea that he would want to, he, he wants to be the, the first guy to jump into the jet stream. He saw these huge, strong winds which go around the world um, at altitudes of eight to 12,000 meters. And, and so, you know, the like, airplanes commercial airplanes are using it for tailwind to use less fuel yeah. because it has just this incredible power these these winds can go up to 380 kilometers per hour so really fast enormous energy potential and so he because of his passion of flying he thought it would be cool to see whether you can do that and in addition he he thought why are we not using this energy yeah. because it's the perfect renewable clean energy you know whilst we all wondering you know what can we do how can we replace uh, fuel and carbon for energy resources what should we do you know solar or wind or whatever but nobody ever looked really at high altitude winds which are absolutely incredible sources of energy so he he had this idea to combine both he stunt to make a record use it to win attention for high altitude wind power right it's a clean energy source so i had no clue about skydiving, no clue about high altitude wind, wind energy. I had no clue about anything. <laughs> but, you know, that story is, is a perfect example how s through the making of a documentary, you learn all sorts of new things. So it, it's just a, a very good way of, of having new insights, learning new things about our world. So the, Mark, Mark Hauser, he just called me up one day. I went to meet him. Uh, in a restaurant in Bern, the capital of Switzerland, and on a on a paper napkin on the table over lunch, you know, he was just drawing me some basic diagrams about the jet stream and, and his crazy idea. I said, "Wow, this looks this is a perfect story, absolutely crazy." But you know, that's what you need. You need a character who is driven, and hopefully, he will succeed. And not the uh, uh, and and you know, he came across as a guy who who thought about it a long time and. and so I felt it's worthwhile to take a risk to to work with him. And conversely, he needs someone who's crazy enough and willing to go out on a limb with his story to be able to tell that story. And that's why he met with you. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Because that's that's often the, the, a fundamental issue with documentary filmmaker. Yeah. If you try to sell a film to TV or to commercial organizations, they always want to make sure it will be a success because <laughs> otherwise the editors whoever or the managers who are responsible for these programs they will lose their jobs if they commission stories which fail and and and, <laughs> and never come to a conclusion right so they are they are so anxious always to know that whatever they commission will be a success and then the other thing is they often want to be in the trend you know politically or whatever mm. uh, so that it fits the current trend and so if you come with topics which are at the moment not in the headlines anywhere in the yeah. media, they yeah. are bought. You know, it could be the most incredible story, but if it's not trendy at the moment, 
they don't even look at it. Right. And, and my stories, the ones where I know I, I, I will find the energy to make the best out of it is always depending on characters. I don't really care what the story is as long as I have a character which is driven and passionate uh... is an amazing idea. That's the key for, for, for what I'm looking for. So a guy like Mark Hauser is the perfect example. You know, he comes with a crazy idea, has no idea how long it will take him to get to the jet stream, whether it's even possible. He thinks it's feasible, but, you know, everybody tells him you are crazy. You can't do that. It's, it will be suicide. But then just talking to him, I realized the guy is highly intelligent. He really has enormous experience with, uh, with anything to do with aviation and flying yeah. and, and, and physics and, and meteorology and everything. So I felt hmm, it's, it's, it's worthwhile to take a risk. And I, I like these characters who are out of the norm. And so the problem is if you then try and sell a story like that commissioning editors they panic because you can't guarantee that it will work <laughs> that's right and so they, they they stay away from it and and but I, I you know once in a while so every few years i like to do this type of stories just on my own steam ah. and usually usually hardly any budgets you know because i can say my time and my skills I can put it in as an investment. There is no money, no budget, as long as we find a little bit of budgets to cover ah, expenses and flights. Yeah. Um, I'm happy to work on that basis. And so, obviously, you know, it's, it's, it's a risky approach commercially. Yeah. Uh, can't really earn a living with that. It's, it's very risky. Yeah. But once in a while, I like to do it because it's actually, from my point of view, that's the true, real proper documentary approach i'm going to ask you another sort of practical question as a doc filmmaker and this is more of a budgetary uh type of question i know in this conversation you had mentioned like with a film like chasing the jet stream maybe it's more of a passion project and so you're putting up a lot of the budget but it seems like there's potential in a film like this for a lot of sponsorship types of budget was that a part of of your plan with this film did you get involved with that at all to raise funding yeah, it's actually very interesting. Um, I feel the whole market for for filmmakers is changing very fast. Mm. Uh, you know, I started off with, as I explained, you know, little news reports about Afghanistan um, in '85, and then more and more I realized everything I do is for TV, and I managed to to then find connections with the TV industry in the UK which was more interesting than in, in the rest of Europe because yeah. the English-speaking market was bigger yeah. and there was an appetite for freelancers um, at the time in the 90s. And then for at the beginning, it was actually a handicap to say, yeah, I'm a one-man show. I can do everything a little. Like, like for you, it was the same. It, like, it was a handicap because at the time when I started in the UK in 19, from 1990 onwards, People were still used to work with big crews. There was a director, there was a cameraman, a sound recordist, an assistant, all sorts of people, and they couldn't. They, it didn't fit into the mark into the industry. Just having one guy, and then only later on, maybe from you know 2000 onwards, when the TV budgets came down, yeah. suddenly it became interesting to find uh, multi-skilled people. That's how I I, I got the the long way round. Yeah, right. I was multi-skilled, and and so. Now, in, but, in, in budget terms, at the, at the time, it was still mainly most of my work was always for TV. 
And then suddenly, with the start of, of uh, online streaming and YouTube and, and distribution uh, over the internet, TV stations, they started to struggle even more. And you had even less budgets. Yeah. And then I realized they don't even have the, 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 um, the guts anymore to invest in proper research. No, no. And, and you know, everybody expects you now to, to shoot a film, you know, two, maximum three weeks, and then to edit <laughs> in two, three weeks. You know, if, if, you, if you shoot the film for, for let's say, Al Jazeera, um, you know, if, if anything that takes more time than two, three weeks shoot and, and two, three weeks edit, they are, apt, they are not even interested in it. Yeah. They are not even looking at it because they, they know they, they couldn't justify the budgets for it. Right. And that's when I started to say, look, at least once in a while, huh. uh, no, sometimes I can do these pro commercial projects. But it's always annoying because you know, with more time, you could do something more interesting oh, and better. Oh God! Yeah. <laughs> uh, but then once in once in a once in a while, I said, I'm doing a film on my own, and I don't care how long it takes. I just do it. And then with Jetstream, the chasing the Jetstream, the first thing was I I knocked at the door of uh, BBC World News TV um, because I did stories for them before. And I know they don't really. So that's the commercial arm of. Uh, the BBC, right. which means they have much, much less money than terrestrial BBC, where they are financed by license fee. The commercial arm BBC World News, they, they don't have the license fee. They need to generate the cash through advertising. And that's very difficult. So, you know, they don't have that much um, uh, cash, yeah. but they they have a huge market. They cover the whole world. And I, I know through them, I could get a, an interesting... Uh, outlet, global outlet, reaching, you know, still huge audience. Based on that, they, they basically give you a little paper saying, yes, uh, if you manage to get that story off the ground, if that guy seriously manages to get into the chat stream, we would love to see the film ah. and we'll show it and pay you a little license fee, royalty um, to have exclusivity for one week yeah. or a month or something like that. So it's not you know, it's not a guarantee. You have no upfront cash. You have nothing, but you have a little bit of something already kind of prepared the ground that potentially there is an interesting outlet with, which, which, where you can reach a big audience. And with that paper, you can then go around and try and find sponsors saying, look, by the way, we're doing this film. Potentially yeah. it will be on, on, on BBC World. And so hopefully you will win some interest. And so we tried this to do. We tried to do it with um, Jetstream uh, Superman first. We called it Jetstream Superman before, and then we changed it later to Chasing the Jetstream. So we we tried it with this film and had absolutely no luck. Oh because wow! Even, even even sponsors, you know, all these massive big companies around the world, they, it's too risky. They don't want to be involved in something where they are not sure. Oh. It, no, it's it's uh, was there fear behind that Claudio in terms of like this could be disastrous and we don't want to be attached to something maybe that and 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 the managers who would be responsible in the marketing departments to put money on a story like that yeah you know they have they are probably anxious about their jobs yep. you know if something goes wrong then some somebody will turn against them you know how could you've been so crazy to, to support this yeah yeah to put money on on a, on a on a crazy roulette game oh. and and so it didn't work. And so then we said, okay, let's do something else. We we um, try crowdfunding. Yes. And so that's the very first time I tried crowdfunding. <laughs> and 
I didn't have illusions about it. Okay. That, you know, suddenly you will have thousands of people who will pay a fiver or a tenner for your film. I think the companies who run crowdfunding platforms, you know, they, they just do it for a business. Right. And, you know, they don't care where the money comes from. They, they <laughs> just have just want to have as many projects as possible and get their little cut from everything. Right. But I said, look, before we ask too many questions, we should just try and do it once. And then I had an interesting, um, and, and the one thing on the crowdfunding platforms, you know, in the help files, what they tell you, you should make sure upfront before you even launch your campaign, you should make sure that you have some friends and families who guarantee you to pledge money as quickly as possible within the first three three days or right, a week right. to cover already like 20, 30 percent of, of your final right, goal. Right. Because then that looks good yep. and it might attract you know, more people. Behind. Right. There's a formula to it. We talk about it all the time in the show. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So so you basically that's exactly what we did so we we you know called around so we we made a few calls and we knew we can cover the kind of uh, um the money yeah. quite quickly so we 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 were asking for eighty thousand dollars and i knew we will never get it <laughs> so i chose the I chose i chose the the formula where you whatever comes in you keep it you don't it's not like everything or nothing yeah you, you have these two options so we use the indiegogo, indiegogo where you have yeah. the option to say whatever comes in we take it and so made sure we get to the 20,000 mark as yep. quickly as possible yeah effectively friends and family yeah people you know already personally yeah so they pledge money and then on the back of that you have a few more but you know it was minimal it was it was really you shouldn't have illusions about it yeah we had uh, all in all we had um like 50 or 60 people backing it yeah it's really minimal okay and okay. and yeah. 10 out of the 50 they covered the 20,000 at yeah. the beginning. Yeah, right, right, <laughs> so, right. exactly. Yep. So, so that's the reality of crowdfunding. But then there was something very interesting, which I didn't expect, and that's an interesting angle. Um, within my email shots, which I put out to everybody on my list, I have maybe 3,000 contacts. Yeah. So everybody gets hit by my email shots, whether they like it or not, they just get it. <laughs> and then in that list, obviously, there's a link to our crowdfunding campaign with a little trailer from Mark explaining what he intends to do. Yeah. And so on my email list, there were two people who worked for financial institutions, one in a private bank in Switzerland hmm. and another one, an asset management company in, in Zurich. And so they were just friends of mine. Hmm. And they said, oh, Cool, cool story. Claudio is doing something crazy again. Very curious to find out how that will work. And so they then sent it internally to their marketing departments oh. in their companies yeah. saying, look, I have a friend. He's doing this crazy film. Don't you think this could be interesting for our company? And then suddenly I got a call from these marketing people. Um, you know, calling up saying we, we got this link, you know, doing an interesting story. Can we talk? So I simply had, you know, before we tried, you know, for weeks and weeks and weeks, we tried to call and get in touch with marketing peoples of all these companies, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> absolutely. Spend so much time and much energy and and it's absolutely pointless. And then at the end, we actually got some really good um, sponsorship. But again, through the back doors, through personal right. connections. But but crowdfunding was essential to open that back. That's right. That's right. That's right. And and I'll and so, I'll add to that, Claudio. I would argue I would argue that you said that 
you know, meeting with a bunch of these people prior to that was pointless. I would say, I would argue that it wasn't in the same way that crowdfunding was effective for you. And it's that if you didn't have that practice prior to that, and so if you didn't have the materials ready and you didn't know what your discussion points were be were going to be from having had the practice where it didn't work with people that you met with that didn't want to maybe sponsor the film. If you didn't have that, you may not have been as successful for the people that came to you that wanted to support your film. I would say so it wasn't pointless. I would say all of that practice and all of that preparation that you put in prior to that was absolutely essential for putting into place the success when the banks came that that this particular bank and marketing team came to you and said, "Hey, we'd like to support your film." Yeah, you know, it was actually yeah, I know no, you're absolutely right. Maybe a, one other aspect is is key that you know I I hate all this marketing. I really don't like it. <laughs> just, I find it so tiring. I'm and, sure and, and, you and me but, both. <laughs> but uh, and I think it's for most filmmakers, for most creative people, it's yeah. like one aspect. It just goes against the grain. Yeah. Um, because, but here, you know, the essential was the drive of Mark because he it's his it's it was not my story. It's it's his story. Oh. You know, he wanted to do this. He so he did most of the legwork for all these, um, you know, all these connections with sponsors. So he actually he was the key to push it, and and even to win it, to yeah. win the support eventually through the back door. Yep. You know what these these marketing people from these two financial institutions wanted to see: who is this main protagonist? Uh, if he would have been boring, uh-huh. even so they might known me still nothing would have happened but the key was that mark himself he is just a a very interesting character and 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 so they felt you know he he was essential to to eventually win that sponsorship support we're talking about claudio von planta's latest documentary film chasing the jet stream and chasing the jet stream is showing at this month's mdff melbourne documentary film festival claudio i'd like to ask you what do you know about mdff and what do you know about melbourne documentary film festival and maybe why was this why did you feel like this was an important festival to be a part of (laughs) i i actually I actually don't know much about film festivals because so far I was always spoiled because most of my film went just straight to uh, to TV. Yeah, right. <laughs> and then once films have been in TV, most festivals were not interested anyway. Uh, and uh, because they are keen to have premieres and be the first where the films are shown and right. whatever. Uh, and so I was never really looking much into the festival um, scene and only now recently since i realized i want to do more totally independent films yeah. no commissions um then i discovered that today we have loads of festivals all around the world and i felt it's you know we should definitely try and see whether anybody's interested in what we are doing and we were very pleased um because the, the story with chasing the stretch stream at the beginning we tried to do the jump over Switzerland, over the Swiss Alps. Right. And it didn't work because of bad weather. We waited the whole winter from uh, 2017 to 2018, and we just didn't have a single day where we could do it. And so we then realized, shall we wait again for a whole year for the next winter in Switzerland? Or 
is there another option? And so Mark immediately felt, no, 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 we just need to go somewhere else where, where there's winter because in winter the jet streams are, are lower down and they are faster. Yeah. Uh, and that's where Australia came into the picture. <laughs> and, and suddenly we were looking at Australia and eventually we succeeded to do it in Australia. Yeah. And, and it, was, it was really cool that the Melbourne Documentary Festival, they were the first who were interested in the story. Fantastic. And it just fits nicely because we, we, we really, the film came to a conclusion in Australia. And the key figure, that's another reason why Melbourne is, is such a good place. Yeah. The key figure who made it possible that we actually could do it in Australia yeah. was um, a Melbourne-based uh, jet pilot. That's right. Uh, so and, and that, it's really cool that the, the film will be shown in, in Melbourne because that was our base to kind of start the project on the Australian side of the story. Claudio, as we wrap up this conversation today here in the documentary life, I'm curious if in this conversation, if anything has come up that you felt like you wanted to impart or share with our doc filmmaking audience, are there any sort of final words of wisdom you might be able to leave us with? You can only focus on documentary filmmaking if you have a real passion for it, because it can be very tricky, very risky, can take a long time. And many people around you might say, this will never work, but you just need to stick with it. You need to have that energy to stick with it. And it only comes with a, a real passion. And very often it's not commercial. And, and lots of people think they would probably give up if, if they just think it's unreasonable because it's, you, you don't really earn a living with it. If you're lucky, you can earn a living, but it shouldn't be your first focus. We've been speaking with documentary filmmaker and DP extraordinaire Claudio Van Planta. His current film is Chasing the Jet Stream. Claudio, this has been an absolutely exhilarating conversation. Uh, dare I say it has taken us to far heights, great heights. So <laughs> thank you so much for, for having this conversation with us, Claudio. Thank you so much for being on The Documentary Life. Brilliant. Thank you very much. And don't forget, if you're interested in possible enrollment in our independent documentary Filmmaker 101 course, and you'd like to see if it might be a fit for you, head on over to thedocumentarylife.com slash courses. We'll see you in two weeks' time, Doc Lifer.